Hey everybody and welcome. I'm so glad you're here today for my series, uh, Acting Like Saul and Becoming Like David. We are in session three. We're going to learn a lot more about David. You may remember from our last lesson that Saul was dismissed from his kingship. Uh, God told through Samuel that Saul was going, was not a man after God's heart, and he was not going to be able to continue as king. And then God anointed David as king. He had Samuel go and visit the home, David's home, and, and David was anointed. But we know he's going to have to wait many years before he actually takes the throne. And so Saul does not know that uh, David has been anointed king and he has become his harpist. And uh, he has become, he is beginning to know uh, David just a little bit better. So that's where we left off. And now we're going to see how God is going to use David in another very miraculous way that's going to help set him up uh, again for his role as the king of Israel. So we're going to dig into 1 Samuel 17 today. So follow along as I read. The Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between Socha in Judah and Azekah at Ephesdamim. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the Valley of Elah. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. Think of the valley. On one side, the Hebrew dominated the hill country of Judea. And on the other side of the valley, the Philistines control the coastal plain. And the land between these two enemies is the lowland, and it's called the Valley of Elah. Well, the Philistines now were camped in, uh, on the south side of the valley, and King Saul's forces were on the northern side of the valley. We already are seeing an image in here of the peaks and the valleys, and we're going to see that in this lesson of the idea that we all have peaks and valleys, those moments when uh, we are on top of the mountain, and then those times where we're in the valley and, that, and we are tested, and that's what David is getting ready to go through. Well, David then um, is at home. He is taking care of the sheep. And we see in this first, at the, at the beginning, we're going to see the entrance of Goliath. He is a Goliath from Gath. This is the same area that most of the Israelites had been afraid to enter as they were going into the promised land because the giants lived there. Verse 4, Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet and his bronze coat of mail weighing 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him, carrying a shield. 
Oh my goodness, what an imposing image Goliath is at over 10 feet tall and decked out in all of his armament. All of this armor he has the bronze helmet. He has a coat of armor and that coat of armor is made of brass plates laid one over the other. It's kind of like the scales of fish, hundreds of those overlaying each other. 5,000 shekels is about 125 pounds that he is carrying. And then he has what's called bronze jeeves, and those were what covered his shins, and his bronze javelin, and that the tip alone weighed 15 pounds. And then he has that, that spear at, at, at the end is, is called the spear shaft. And here is what historian Moshe Garciel wrote, wrote. To the Israelites, this extraordinary spear with its heavy shaft plus long and heavy iron blade when hur hurled by Goliath's strong arm, capable of piercing any bronze shield and bronze armor together. So can you see why the Israelites might be afraid to come forward to fight this giant? Saul, the tallest of the Israelites, may have been especially worried because he was obviously the best match for Goliath. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across uh, to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? He called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then, he, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. An army tried to avoid the high cost of battle by pitting strong warriors against each other. So they would select the strongest of the strong each side. And so Goliath is representing that. And this could avoid bloodshed of so many warriors. Uh, the winner of the fight would be considered the winner of the battle. Well, Goliath had the definite advantage because he was so tall. But what Goliath didn't realize is that he was standing up against the army of God, the army of the Lord, and his battle. He had no idea what it was going to uh, entail. Well, verse 12. Now, David was the son of a man named Jesse, an Ephrathite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Jesse was an old man at that time, and he had eight sons. Jesse's three oldest sons, Eliab, uh, Abinadab, and Shemed, had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. David was the youngest. David's three oldest brothers stayed with Saul's army. But David went back and forth so that he could keep his fa help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. So David is back home in Bethlehem, which is about 12 miles away. And he's going back and forth and he's checking on the brothers. He's taking them food. And Goliath all this time for 40 days is taunting the Israelites. So think of that setting. The sides are stationed on either side of the valley. And so that would be a steep hill to climb. And so that would be a, a 
working way the way down or someone working the way up to take on the enemy and whoever is going to rush down the valley and then go back up the steep hill of the opponent's side is going to be at a disadvantage because he's going to the, begin the battle uh, very worn out and probably suffer ca casualties. So each side is waiting for the other to attack first. Verse 17, one day Jesse said to David, Take this basket of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers and then give these ten cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report of how they're doing. David's brothers were there with Saul and the Israelite army at the uh, valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early the next morning with the gifts as Jesse had directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. Jesse's sons had been with Saul now for at least six weeks. Jesse wanted to know if his sons were safe. He also wanted to know if the battle was going well, so he sends David. And so I noticed that, first of all, David took care of those sheep, didn't he? He made sure that there was another shepherd to care for those sheep. That would have been the, the hired she, uh, shepherd. And then he went to find his brothers. David starts out on a routine day. It is an ordinary day, a mundane day. And he has a task of delivering food. He has a, a bushel of grain. He has 10 loaves of bread. He had 10 kinds of cheeses to give to the commander. You know, often we are engaged in just the normal, the everyday task when we encounter our own giants. Have you ever been going about your ordinary day when all of a sudden a gloom settles on you? Or you wake up in the morning, an ordinary Monday, we'll say, and you have to deal with one stress or one disappointment after another. Or you're going through the motions of the day and you get the call, a call that changes everything for you. Well, you can also find yourselves then on a mountain facing a giant. Well, the words and the appearance of Goliath are terrifying Saul and the Israelites. This message the giant is giving them is this ultimatum. If you can't overcome the giant, then you will serve him. What's the message for us? If we cannot overcome our own spiritual flaws, our, our weaknesses, our giants in our life, when we can't overcome our own issues, our own circumstances, our own flaws in our character, our weaknesses, we will end up serving them. It's such an important lesson for us. Well, verse 21 says, Soon the Israelite and the Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. David left the things with the keeper of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he is talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. The men asked David, 
Have you seen the giant? He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man, listen to the high stakes here, one of his daughters for a wife. And the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. Well, that seems to be a pretty good deal. You get a wife and no taxes. David asked the soldiers standing by, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is the pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? Well, what a different perspective David has. You know, perspective is so important to us. Most onlookers there saw a giant. They were fearing for their lives. But David saw this mortal man defying the God Almighty. And Goliath was a target too big to miss. David knew. It, start, it started, the wheel started turning, didn't they? He, he began to turn on his thought process in a way that presented possibilities because he changed his perspective. He knew that he was facing a giant that was defying God, but he knew that God would be with the person who faced this giant. David had God's perspective. Battles, no matter how big, can be worn when we don't see them as bigger than God. Think about your own giants right now, those things that you are facing that seem to be insurmountable. Viewing impossible situations from God's point of view helps us to put the giant problem into perspective. It helps us to see more clearly. And when we see more clearly, we can fight more effectively. Verse 27 says, And these men gave David the same reply. Yes, they said, There is a reward for killing him. But when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, listen, look at his response. He was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about all about your pride and your deceit. You just wanted to come and see the battle, didn't you? And then David replies, well, what have I done now? Indicating this probably is taunting from his brothers has gone on a long time. He said, I was only asking a question. He walked over to some others and asked them the same thing, and he got the same answer from them. Their focus was on the giant and their fear. So now David is the messenger and bearer of food, but he overhears all this taunting, and he cannot believe that no one in the army of the Lord is brave enough to face the giant. And here's what he knows, and it's what he is processing. If no one fights, then they'll all be slaves of the Philistines. And he knows somebody needs to take a stand. He realizes somebody has to face the giant. And he's not getting support from anywhere, even those closest to him, his brothers. 
the reaction of the brother was one of anger and taunting and derision. Before he fights the giant, he has to engage in his own battle with his brother. The brother and his belittling tone. Don't you think he was, uh, that the brother is thinking, he's wandering around this meek, handsome musician, and, and he is on this battlefield asking questions, and he's looking, he's making everybody uh, uh, a little bit uncomfortable, and he's also embarrassing the brothers. But David's reaction is so interesting. He said, I was simply asking a question. I see that David was using that very important skill of curiosity. He was curious and he began to think deeply and he began to think differently about his circumstance and the situation the Israelites were facing. And he, he, he said this in this form of that question, who is this giant to taunt the living God? Well, when we fight our own spiritual battles, it's often true that we have to overcome all kinds of conflict, even sometimes conflict from those closest to us. We often have to deal with jealousy and derision before we can move forward with our own battles. But criticism could not stop David. While the rest of the army stood around, he knew it was going to be important to take action, to move forward with God to fight for him. There was no reason to wait. That's what's going on in his brain, in his mind. People may try to discourage us with their own negative comments or mockery or telling us we can't or we shouldn't and don't. But then what David is showing us, it's important to always continue moving forward, doing the next right thing, the thing that God is leading us to do. But doing what is right will be pleasing to God. And his is the opinion that matters most. Look at verse 31. Then David's question was reported to King Saul. And so the king sent for David. And David told Saul, don't worry about this Philistine. I'll go fight him. Saul's reply is, don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy. And he's a man of war since his youth. Once again, David is underestimated. David is going to attempt something great for God. And those who know him best are critical. Do you ever encounter similar opposition? I want you to listen to this commentary about those who oppose us. Those who undertake great and public services must not think it strange if they are spoken ill of and opposed by those from whom they expect support and enemies' threats. Oh, I'm sorry, it's expect support and assistance. They must humbly go on with their work in the face not only of enemies' threats, but also of friends' slights and suspicions. What good advice when God's calling us to move forward and He has a task for us, we know that we are going to get opposition from those who are facing us and those who are standing next to us. And this advice is to keep moving forward. 
Well, let's see how David defends himself, verse 34. But David persisted. So he had perspective and persistence. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. Look at how he weaves a beautiful story in here. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a cub and I rescue that lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine. For he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from the Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. Do you see what David did? He used examples of how God had been with him before. When he was a young, younger person and he had been minding his own business in the flocks, having his own ordinary day in the flocks, and a, a lion rushed upon his prey, and David defended his sheep. Imagine the bravery that would be required to meet a savage beast like that, who was probably ravenous with hunger. He also remembered his flock had been attacked by a bear, and once again, he rescued the sheep from its mouth. And then when the beast turned on David, he struck and killed them. He's recalling the times he was tested, he was tried, and he succeeded in fighting the attacker, and he gave God the credit for helping him do that. Well, many of us have been attacked also. Spiritual giants have come after us, haven't they? Have you ever experienced little battles with these giants? Has the giant of fear ever attacked you? Attacked you? How, how about the giant of loneliness or, or stress or procrastination? Have you been able to attack it? If you've done it once, you can do it again and again and again. David is showing that his little battles have prepared him for the war he was getting ready to rage against the biggest beast of them all. And God who had delivered him from the lion and the bear will deliver him from this beast of the Philistine. Notice his reasoning skills. He used this parallel connection between the lion and the, the Philistine. He says, if I act in the same manner of my faith in God with this giant as I did with the lion, well, God is the same God, and so the result will be the same. Oh, that we would adopt that same logic. We would say something like, I've had problems in the past, and God was faithful, and I have problems in the present, and God will be faithful again. What an important lesson for us to learn from young David. Let, let's extend this parallel thinking. David's flock was defenseless, and he needed to rescue them. And now he sees that Israel is defenseless against this giant, and he must defend her. He was alone when he took down the lion, and evidently he's going to be alone when he takes down this giant. 
And then he thinks again, you know, I took down a brute force once. I can take down a brute force again because this Philistine is just another wild animal. He relied on God as his one source only. God is his source. And Saul gave his blessing. Verse 38, Then Saul gave David his armor, a bronze helmet, and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, and took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. Look at this next action. So David took them off again. And then he packed up five smooth stones from a stream and he put them in the shepherd's bag. Then armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. David's next step, see, was to put himself in the same condition of his former occasions. So he rid himself of everything that hampered him. He had fought the lion with nature's weapons. And so that's how he would meet the Philistine. His whole art here is his faith. That was his science and his skill. His faith. Off went the royal tunic that King Saul had dressed him in. Off went the glittering helmet, which no doubt made his head ache with all the weight. Off went that cumbersome armor in which he found very hard to move in. In such a metallic prison, he did not feel like David. And therefore, he put it all aside. And he wore only his shepherd's frock. And as for that magnificent sword that was strapped by his side, he felt like it was just a more, ornament, more of an ornament. And so off it went with the rest of the trappings, and he put on his pouch and took nothing with him but his sling, his five stones, and his faith in God. David was what was called during that time, a projectile warrior, a slinger. David was a slinger. See, slingers during that time were a part of the, the war plan. They were a warrior. Slingers had a leather pouch attached by, on two sides by this long strand of rope. And they would put a rock or a lead ball into the pouch and they would swing it increasingly wider and wider and faster in circles and then they would release one end of the rope and hurl that rock forward. Slinging took an extraordinary amount of skill and practice but in experienced hands the sling was a devastating weapon. David intends to fight Goliath the same way he had learned to fight wild animals as a projectile warrior. Look at what he used. Stones. About 10 miles outside of Jerusalem, archaeologists not too terribly long ago uncovered nearly three dozen sling stones. Most were roughly round and slightly over 
two inches in diameter. It was anywhere from the size of a billiard ball to a tennis ball. And then he had that sling. And so that sling was another part of his uh, weapon of choice. And the image of him taking the, the sling and the balls and he's slinging them around and around and he's going to release that stone in the right time is an underhand emotion. So, emotion. so imagine a softball pitcher. Imagine that motion. And, uh, you know, my husband and I watch softball games um, um, we're, we're proud Tennessee fans that we watched. And just last night, we watched a new freshman pitcher. And wow, she had that motion to precision. And she would wind that arm around and around and release that ball. And this is the motion that David is planning to use. Don't we often get mired down in, in knowing the regular rules and the methods and this is the way we've always done it and this is the way that's expected for us to do. That's what Saul was putting on David. He was giving him a formula for fighting the battle. What David really need was a whole heap of courage. That's what we need also when we fight our battles. Sometimes we don't choose to fight them in the regular way, in the expected way. We use the way that God is leading us. He's showing us and directing us on how to fight our battles. He's giving us our own battle plan. And when we tune into the plan He is laying out for us, there's no stopping us, is there? Let's look at the dramatic conclusion beginning in verse 41. Goliath walked toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at the ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared to David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, You come to me, with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defied. Today, today, he said, the, the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people. And everyone assembled will know the Lord rescues his people. Not with a sword and a spear. This is the Lord's battle, and He will give you to us. What courage we're seeing. What do you think of when you think of courage? It's typically a firefighter entering a building, isn't it? And that is a courageous act. And, and soldiers who are going to defend their country, that is, is a courageous act. There are other examples of courage, though. 
courage in having the attitude to face anything that is dangerous, difficult, or painful that comes into our path without withdrawing from it. That takes courage. David didn't let the, the labels and the taunting or the threats keep him from going and facing that giant, did he? God helped David break free from the doubts, the cruel words, and the identity others wanted to give him. And God gave David courage to step toward that giant. You know, you may also have been attacked not by physical giants, but by invisible giants. Those giants of discouragement or belittling or, or criticism or fear. We can choose as David did and stand with courage against our invisible foes or we can withdraw. Do promises to stand with us and, and want us to keep our eyes on him as we read in the Psalms that David once wrote. It's in Psalm 16 verse 8. I keep my eyes always on the Lord with him at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Let's see what happens next in verse 48. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in and Goliath stumbled and fell face down. On the ground. David ran toward the enemy, didn't he? He was able to move faster than Goliath because David wasn't burdened down with heavy weapons or armor. David was an expert marksman with a sling, and as he advanced on Goliath, he stayed out of the range of Goliath's huge weapons. He put that rock in the sling and he whipped it around and around and faster and faster at six or seven revolutions per second, aiming his projectile right at Goliath's forehead. And wham, shazam, that stone had enough power to penetrate his skull and render Goliath dead. That stone in David's hand had stopping power, didn't it? In his book, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants, Malcolm Gladwell says this, This duel reveals the folly of our assumptions about power. The reason King Saul is skeptical of David's chances is that David is small and Goliath is large. Saul thinks of power in terms of physical might. He doesn't appreciate that power can come in other forms as well, in breaking some rules, in substituting speed and surprise for strength. See, what made David effective was more than his ability with a sling. David was underestimated because they underestimated his courage and his faith with God. God gave David stopping power. To fight like David, we need David's kind of fearlessness and courage. And we too can have stopping power.
We need stopping power to fight our own spiritual, moral, and physical battles. Verse 50 said, So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over, as he promised, and pulled Goliath's sword from his sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off his head. And then he further did as promised and shared it and showed it in front of all the Philistine army and Israel's army. It's a gory end to a glorious story, isn't it? It's one of courage and bravery. It's a story of contrast between Saul and David. David chose to do the hard thing. David, unlike Saul, chose not to listen to the crowd. David, unlike Saul, chose to rely on his faith in God. And unlike Saul, David chose to stand up against wrong. And he chose to give God credit. David chose well, and Saul had to watch, didn't he? Look at all the contrast and think about those and David Goliath and Goliath and, and where they put their trust and, and what was important for their covering and their, their motive and for their protection. Their armor was so different. Goliath had a bronze helmet, but David put on that helmet of salvation. Goliath had a coat of armor, but David put on his breastplate of righteousness. Goliath had the bronze greaves, but David was, had his feet fitted with readiness for the battle. Goliath had a bronze javelin, but David put on a belt of truth. Goliath had a spear, but David's armor was the sword of truth. And Goliath had a shield. He had someone walking in front of him to shield him too, didn't he? But David had the shield of faith. David used God's invisible armor to fight his battle. Paul tells us about that in Ephesians 6. Be strong and in the Lord and in his mighty power and put on God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. You know, he tells us in this passage several times in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 14, he tells us to stand. Stand. Armor's heavy, isn't it? He says, stand. But imagine the weight of God's perfect armor used to defend us against our enemies, both the internal and external ones. He wants us to secure our armor and stand. He wants us to put on the whole armor. Stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all flaming arrows of the evil one. And you take that helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then he says this, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers 
and request. What wisdom there is for us in fighting our battles by using the invisible armor of God instead of all the other things that people put on us and tell us to use and tell us to do. Y'all know how I love uh, the image of David at, uh, that Michelangelo did, the David. It's housed in the Academia Gallery in Florence, Italy. It is the most magnificent piece of sculpture that I have ever seen. It stands over 14 feet tall and it weighs over six tons. Michelangelo worked on it for two years, chiseling away at the marble to create his masterpiece. He reportedly said, I saw the angle, angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. When asked how he made the statue, Michelangelo was noted to say, it's easy. You just chip away the stone that doesn't look like David. And isn't that what we can do with our own labels, our own titles, our own weaknesses, our own personality issues? We can chip away at our own imperfections until they too disappear and we look more like the way God created us. It's also what God does with us. He chips away at our imperfections until we see ourselves as He sees us. That means we change our perspective. Most scholars consider the work of Michelangelo that David shows David before his battle with Goliath. David's face looks tense and ready for battle. His furrowed brow shows determined thought. His eyes show him in deep concentration as if he sees something off in the distance that has his full attention. The muscles throughout his body are seen as tight. The tendons in his neck are bulging as are the ones in his hands. He has his weight on his right leg with his right placed forward ready to spring into action. He carries the sling over his left shoulder suggesting a relaxed confidence in the action that's about to take place. The contrast in his intense expression and his relaxed stance show that David is confident and he is focused on his decision to fight this formidable giant, David. This piece of art is a frozen moment in time. This moment shows the lapse in time between David's decision and his action. This shows a pause between a stimulus coming toward him and his response. David was in the gap. The gap. See, God created us with this special blessing of a time lapse, even though it might just be a few seconds. That time lapse is between the time that someone or something com comes at us, confronts us, and our response. David was ready in the gap. He knew what was ahead of him. And he also knew what was behind him. David had many reasons not to move out of the gap. 
David had lived with many labels that could have prevented him from moving forward appropriately out of the gap. He had many reasons to react in different ways in his gap. He could have turned. He could have run away. He could have dropped his weapon. He could have cried out in frustration. He could have shouted in anger. But David persisted. He didn't let the label stand in his way of victory. No, David moved forward in the gap with faith. David defended himself, and he told of his successes fighting off animals. And he told himself he was ready to proceed forward. That's David in the gap. Are you ready in your gap? Do you allow God to stand with you in that often just a few seconds of time when you need to confront an issue, when you need to respond with love to somebody, or you need to make a decision of some sort? In your gap, are you choosing to react or respond? Are you reacting without giving pause and prayer? Remember, when we are faced with an obstacle that seems overwhelming, untimely, filled with anger, frustration, we do these things. We take a pause. We take a breath. We say a prayer. And then we do the next right thing with God's help. Let's be faithful in our decisions as David was. God has promised not to desert us. He says this, and we read in Psalm 119, verse 30, I've chosen to be faithful. I have determined to live by your regulations. And here's what we, we read in Hebrews 13, verse 5, For he himself has said, I will never desert you, and never will I forsake you. See, David came to the valley of El Elah that day from Bethlehem. But he didn't go to be a hero. He was just having an ordinary day in an ordinary valley. But it changed David's life forever. He didn't start being courageous that day by, by killing Goliath. No. He started a pattern of courage by demonstrating responsibility in his daily, ordinary life. By taking care of those sheep by practicing his music, by being obedient, by trusting God each day. See, David lived thousands of days that never made it into the scriptures. You know, we too have our ordinary days, our thousands of days. How are we living those thousands of days? See, we want to stay faithful in the ordinary. And God will often then use our ordinary days in extraordinary ways. See, he promises to make simple faithfulness great in his time. 1 Peter 5, 6 says this, So humble yourselves 
under the mighty power of God. And at the right time, He will lift you up in honor. Oh God, our Father, thank you for this message of David's life, his example of courage, of how he responded standing in the gap, how he trusted you, how he was able to move forward in spite of. Help us to take that with us today in our ordinary life and help us to use it in faith to do the extraordinary things that you lead us to. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Can't wait to see you again next time. Have a blessed day.